Well, like, uh, like Chip mentioned, we're starting a new sermon series today, but it, but it is also a very old sermon series. So this has been a three-year-long sermon series. Some of you are like, what? We haven't talked about the same thing for three years. So a few years ago, we started a sermon series called Minor Prophets, Major Lessons. And there are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And the reason that they're called minor prophets, and there's about five that are major prophets, is because more people use the major prophets for names for their sons than the minor no, I'm, I'm just kidding. That, that's not true. It's just because the minor prophets are just shorter. So uh, they have less chapters than, than the major prophets, and that's it. And so we're going to be looking at Zephaniah today. Don't, don't hear that name very, very often. But yes, there is a book of the Bible in the Old Testament called Zephaniah. It's the ninth of 12 minor prophets. And uh, we're taking a look at this because just because the minor prophets are, are a little bit shorter doesn't mean that the lessons that we, that we find within the text are any less important. In fact, they're very poignant, very timely messages for us. They're about the nation of Israel. It's about how God is moving among the nations, what he's doing, how he's responding to what's happening and going on. And uh, minor, the minor prophets have no less potent or important uh, timely messages for us today. And Zephaniah is no exception to this. Zephaniah weighs in at only three chapters. And while we're not going to read all three chapters together this morning, I would encourage you at some point during your Bible reading time this week, just go through and read, read all three chapters, kind of get an understanding of the context and what's happening here. We're going to talk about that, and I think that's going to be helpful for when you spend some time reading it uh, in, your, in your own time. But there's some uh, really interesting messaging here from God, and Zephaniah packs a whole lot into just three chapters. In fact, He's probably uh, the most intense, one of the most intense prophets in what he communicates and how, what God has to say. He kind of writes in a poetic form, but not the kind of poetry maybe that we normally talk or think about, um, you know, not the flowery, lovey-dovey, you know, we're in February, so you're thinking maybe uh, about, you know, a lovely Valentine's Day poem. These, these are not those. In fact, if you've ever heard or maybe read through the Old Testament, heard the critique somebody has made about the Old Testament, it sounds like, sounds like God is kind of angry in the Old Testament. If you've ever heard that before, Zephaniah would be one of those reasons uh, because his language is very intense, it's very stark, it's very direct, it's very apocalyptic, it's very catastrophic and chaotic. And some of you are thinking, Oh man, you know, I, I'm not sure if I'm into that. That's not, that's not why I came here this morning. Um, but, but there's a really important reason why it reads like that. Um, and I'll tell you why when you read the Old Testament, sometimes you get the impression that God is angry. It's the same, uh, same, uh, same reason that you read in the New Testament and get that impression well. Um, it's because he is. Maybe you didn't expect Maybe you didn't expect that. It's normally kind of like, well, I'll kind of explain away because, you know, what had happened was. No, it's, it's, be, it's because he is. Uh, the difference is when we think about it, we think, man, there's got to be something wrong with that. But in this context, as you read through Zephaniah, you, real, you realize that God actually has some really good reasons to be angry. Uh, there, there's some really good reasons for why he's talking about punishment and he's talking about correction and he's talking about rebuke and admonishment. It's because things had gotten incredibly evil, incredibly sinful, and full of injustice in the lives of the Israelites at this time. 
Uh, the nation of Israel had been ignoring him for quite a while at this point. And just to have you up to speed in historical context, the nation of Israel starts off, everything's great, it's fine. Well, actually, not really. It starts off with Saul, and that didn't work out very well. And, and you get a couple kings into that, and the nation has a civil war. And so it's separated into the northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. That doesn't really go all that well. In fact, the northern kingdom gets themselves overrun by the Assyrians, and they don't really exist anymore. And so there's only the southern kingdom left, the southern kingdom of Judah. And they've kind of extended their life cycle just because they had a couple kings here and there that were a little bit more faithful to, to God than the northern kingdom of Israel. And so that's where we are. At the time Zephaniah is writing, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone, and only the southern kingdom is barely hanging on. And God has provided countless warnings and provided so many opportunities for redemption, and yet the same cycle of sin and evil begins again and again among his people. It's kind of a picture of the cycle of humanity and the things that we get caught up in our world that we can still observe today. And while God is long-suffering, it doesn't mean that he's not going to provide justice against evil. And so Zephaniah in Zephaniah chapter 1 warns with this message from the Lord. And I'm just going to read uh, several verses uh, from this. God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. Baal was a harvest and fertility god. Uh, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Moloch. Uh, Moloch was a god that um, the Israelites and other nations in the area sacrificed their children to. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Um, if you have a habit of jumping into your house, it's not necessarily a problem for you, but this is referring to pagan worship. Um, and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Skip down to verse 12. And God says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Um, I didn't read some of the juicier parts in Zephaniah. Uh, I figured you could enjoy that on your own in your own Bible, Bible reading time, but there's plenty of references to, to blood being spilled and all those kinds of things. And we read that and we think, man, God seems, God seems like he's just ready to wipe the floor. I mean, he's just going to wreck shop. What, what, is, what in the world is going on here? And Zephaniah uses this phrase that's used throughout, throughout Scripture called the day of the Lord. It's this day that is coming that can refer to a couple different things. It can refer to a natural disaster. It can refer to a political um, chaotic thing that happens, war, those kinds of things is what it's used to reference in some, some of the prophets. It's also used in reference of one particular day, like Big D, capital D, Big D, capital D, Day of the Lord, in which God is going to right all wrongs. At that moment in time, he's going to take care of evil, injustice is going to be dealt with, and sin will be, will be no more. Um, and so while Zephaniah is talking about this, this day of the Lord, what it points out to, points out is that at some point, there's going to be a consequence for sin. At some point, injustice is going to be done away with. However, this really, there's really another interesting part of this, and as you continue to read Zephaniah, you start to realize that, is that it never ends there with God. 
And so while it seems like God is really angry and he's going to pour out his wrath, it seems like that because he is, that's never the end of the story. And it doesn't stop there. Um, Like verse 12 says, there's a problem because there are plenty of people, the people of God, who didn't even acknowledge God's sovereignty at this point. They had become so desensitized by their idolatry, violence, oppression, cheating, that they simply started ignoring the evidence around them that they were becoming less human. They were participating, as Zephaniah points out, as God points out, they were participating in human sacrifice. That's how far removed they had become. And I know, um, I know it's not a particularly popular concept to identify punishment and correction as a meaningful part of God's justice and love. And I know, and I totally recognize and understand that sometimes those ideas in Scripture have been used to perpetuate abuse um, as misapplication and misunderstanding of how God employs discipline is, is used almost as a weapon. Sometimes that has happened in the church. Sometimes that has happened within culture. Um, that, is a, that is a major problem. Uh, but if we swing the pendulum the other way to where there is no consequence for wrong actions, there is no incentive to recognize the damage and harm that sin brings about. And so that's what God is communicating in this prophetic message through Zephaniah. Let me, let me give you an example when I read this and I think about this and people, you know, think, man, God seems really angry, um, I think about counting to three as a parent. Have, have, did any of you employ that as, as parents? Now, uh, there's some, some people, and I know new, new parents, you know, that kind of had this idea that, oh, I'm never going to count to three because my kids are going to do what I tell them to do the first time. <laughs> oh, you sweet, sweet summer child. Um, I may or may not have thought that before I became a parent. Um, you know, you realize that it's just not going to happen because sometimes, sometimes our kids need, to, need time to process, need time to make, make a decision. So sometimes they don't re- react immediately to what, what, they, what we say. Um, and so some of us have, have counted to three. But I'll tell you the thing that drove me the, the nuts the most, you know, bothers me the most about that is that there's so many times that I would see parents count to three. And you know what happened when they got to three? Nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Um, That is when, for some parents, you count to three, and then the consequence, hey, if you do not come here, when I tell you to, it's time to leave the playground, I'm going to come get you, and there's going to be a consequence. We're not going to stop for donuts on the way back, or you don't get phone time or whatever. I mean, that wasn't really a thing for my kids uh, growing up, but um, that it, is, it is now. It's a great thing to take away from them, because they shouldn't have their phones as much as they do anyway. Um, I'm not going to get on that soapbox. Um, you know, but there, we, we follow through. As soon as we got to three, the thing, the thing that we said would happen would happen. And you know, the funny thing happened. Our kids starting, started believing us when we started counting to three. And they stopped waiting till three to do what we asked them to do. It's a cra- crazy thing. You should try it sometime. But so many times I would see parents, they would count to three and then nothing would happen. You know what, they would, you know what happens though? You know what they would do? They'd start pleading and negotiating with their child to get them to do what they had asked them to do. You know what that means about who's in charge in the family? <laughs> it's, not, it's not the parent. Um, you know, at some point, when you count to three, you've got to be consistent about what you say you will do. That discipline needs to be consistent. If it isn't, it's how we struggle to become well-developed human beings. And we start to let 
some of the uh, disordered desires within us, if I can call back to the sermon series we, we just finished up, that start to rule us and to start to dehumanize us and start to not let us be able to recognize the consequences of our actions, how it's actually affecting our hearts and our minds. And I'm talking about good, healthy discipline, not the whims of someone who's out of control. Because that's the thing, God is in control, and he won't let those who think they are in control and perpetuate evil to prosper. Where there's a warning from God, he will not let sin and injustice stand. And so, yes, God does get angry about sin and injustice and evil, and his wrath is directed toward getting rid of it and correction. And as people who have been caught up in living like the rest of the world are facing judgment for their actions, as we read through Zephaniah. The same is also coming for the surrounding nations that have perpetuated evil. Most of chapter 2 in Zephaniah is dedicated just to this. Because the nation of Israel has been influenced by all these other nations. They said, we should live like everybody else. That would be a great idea. Because it looks like they're having fun over there. Um, and sometimes we read these things and we think, how could a loving God have this type of anger? And I think it just has to do with how good and relatively safe and shielded from hum human depravity many of us have been in life and not appreciating how devastating some of the horrific things that people have experienced really are. And I'm talking about in modern, modern day, some of the things that people have experienced around the world because of the devastation of, of dehumanization, human depravity, and the evils that we will allow to perpetuate. But historically speaking, just take the Assyrians, just one of the nations that's mentioned in Zephaniah 2. If you know anything about the Assyrians... Their reputation was, was that of the most brutal torturers that, that existed. So what they would do in order to strike fear in the nations that they were coming to overrun and take and rob and steal and plunder and all the other ugly things that happened is they would do horrific things to other human beings. I mean, they mutilated people, they cut off limbs, they would skin people alive, they would put people's heads on pikes. I mean, like those are the kinds of things that they, that they would do. Um, blinded pr prisoners, they were creative, they were the most creative people around cruelty. That's why the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians came, came together and were like, we got to get rid of these people. They're, they're awful, they're horrific. We could keep going about some of the other human atrocities that they participated in, but that's probably enough. This type of pervasive, perpetual, perpetual sin, no one thinks that this should go unchecked and unpunished. Least of all, least of all God. And so God's wrath against evil is real, and it is morally and ethically righteous. We might get uncomfortable with the thought that God punishes, but that probably says more about our casual relationship with sin than an understanding of what sin produces down the road. I mean, quite frankly, God punishes to protect. And hopefully that, that's an aspect of what we think, like if we think about our kids and the things that we do, we, what we're doing when there's a consequence for their action is we're really trying to keep them from something much worse down the road. That's why, we, that's why we do those things. Whether you think about it in terms of parental responsibility or you think about it, you can think about it as God is our shepherd because that's used countless times throughout Scripture. And we are his sheep. Uh, the, reason, the reason that sheep who wander off are, you know, are, are dealt with or punished, you know, sometimes a shepherd would have to you know, maybe put a leg out of joint or something like that so they wouldn't, wouldn't keep wandering off. Um, it is God's desire for us to be free from the ultimate consequences of evil, sin, and injustice which is separation from him forever that, warn, that causes him to warn and discipline and calls us to repentance. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, just basic wisdom, um, says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father of the son he delights in. 
And so the rebuke, the discipline, the correction, the punishment sometimes that we come across in Scripture, or maybe that we even feel the sting of as a result of our sin, it's meant to be a blessing that we are not stuck with the brunt of God's wrath against evil. That, that he, he punishes to, to protect us from, from something much worse down the road that we are walking along. It's because God loves us that he doesn't live, let us live life without consequence. Um, and, and it's because God loves us that he, that he doesn't just stop with a consequence. Even after all the sin and evil and injustice, Zephaniah presents the opportunity that God presents for us to be restored back to him. And so in Zephaniah chapter 2, he says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble in the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And so in other words, Zephaniah says, hey, even though all of this evil has been perpetuated in, in your life and this is what you have participated in, there, God still wants you to come back to him. He wants reconciliation. He offers the opportunity for restoration and for repentance. Um, this is so that we might break the cycle of chaos that threatens to unmake the order and beauty of God's creation. And this is the place where the hope that God provides connects his justice and love. Again, the context that Zephaniah is writing, he's writing in the day and age where one of the actual good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah lived. Um, at the very first verse of Zephaniah chapter 1, he says, hey, I'm writing dur during the time of King Josiah. If you don't know anything about King Josiah, um, King Josiah broke the cycle of generational sin as a king in the southern kingdom of Judah. In 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, you can read more about what's happening there, but he's the grandson of the most evil king that existed in the southern kingdom. He's the guy that introduced child sacrifice to, to the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. And Josiah became king at eight years old. And yet even under all those influential things, the evil and sin that he saw perpetuated by people in power during that time, he didn't participate in it. About 18 years into his reign, in fact, he was concerned with rebuilding uh, worship to God. And as part of that process, they stumbled across a writing of the law that, they had, been, that had been ignored, had been kind of kept hid, hidden away during all this time. And when they read it, Josiah's response was, oh, man, we need, to, we need to shape up. We have been living completely wrong. And so he stops everything. He says, hey, we, we need to come back to God as a people because realize how far off track that we've been taken by all of these other things that we pursued in our life. And because Josiah made that commitment before God, and he said, hey, I'm going to follow you, our nation is going to follow you, he actually delayed the coming, the coming punishment that was coming for the southern kingdom of Judah, for himself and for his people at, at that time. And that's what God wants for us, is to recognize that the result, the evil and injustice you know, result that sin produces in our life um, so we can break the cycle of sin and death that we are so often chained to in our lives. God allows consequences to correct. Um, when we experience rebuke or punishment for wrong actions, they're meant to correct and protect our thinking and behaving to save us from a worse fate and produce a new uh, trajectory for us. This, does, this absolutely requires a certain level of discernment in our life. Without it, we might say that anything undesirable that happens in my life is God punishing me. That couldn't be further from the truth. That's not actually what's going on. Just because something unwanted happened in your life doesn't mean that God is punishing you. Now, 
you might be experiencing a punishment or consequence because of a wrong action, because that's the natural progression in life. When we do things that are wrong, we experience wrong, wrong things. Um, you don't brush your teeth for a year, you're going to get a cavity. You, you know, those kinds of things that we can observe in life, we, we recognize that what happens. Sometimes, though, sometimes we get caught up in somebody else doing wrong things. And so sometimes we have to deal with the consequence of somebody else's sin. And what that should help us recognize is that we don't want to participate that in that or respond in kind because we realize how, how terrible that feels and the result is, is not great. Or sometimes it's just a natural consequence of living in a world broken by sin. There's an ugly side to this in which people misunderstand that the end game for God, they think, they read this and they think, oh man, God's anger is going to be poured out. That the end game for God is doom and destruction, but it's not. It's redemption and restoration. Some of you know this very intimately because you've experienced the chaos, in, in genera- generational chaos in your, in your family, where, where you've seen the cycle of sin and evil and injustice, and you see where it's taken things, and some of you have broken out of that, and you're leading a whole new different path. Uh, you're allowing God to forge a new way in your life moving forward. For others of us, it's a warning and reminder that the practical way of living like Jesus matters and has a direct impact on the trajectory of our lives. These, you know, if we want to call them punishing experiences that we go through in life, are meant to call attention to the fact that there's a better way. And it calls to attention the fact that God wants to provide that better way and enable us to take it. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Because God wants us to experience a trouble-free, self-inflicted trouble-free walk with him. So don't let circumstances drag you down that are meant to build you up. And don't ignore the warnings that without change, eventually you'll get the result that you're traveling toward. It's so obvious when we talk about measurable physical things sometimes, you know, like the teeth brushing example that I just mentioned. But it's no less true or real when it comes to spiritual things as well. Here's what God says he's going to do. Humanity continues its, its cycle of brokenness and evil and sin and justice. God says, here's what's going to happen. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. I thought you just said that God wasn't like seeking out doom and destruction. That was the point. That wasn't the point. Um, yeah, I did, I did say that because when we read this, we, I'm going to pour out my fire of indignation and anger on you. You know, we read that and we think, oh man, that's a destructive fire. You know, fire destroys. There's another thing that fire does when we use it for particular reasons. It also purifies. Um, and so we read this, especially when you get to the transition in verse 9, you realize that, that God, is, God is looking for a different result other than destruction. Destruction is what happens when we continue to perpetuate and live out evil and injustice and sin in our lives. That, that's where that heads to. But God's correction in those moments, he, he's looking for purification because we become something much different when we allow him to purify us as he is pure. We become who we were meant to be and who we were created to be from the very beginning. Um, this destructive fire that sometimes that, you know, we get the perspective of where we think that's happening here is actually a purifying one. And what this looks like um, from, a, uh, from, from Chronicles of Narnia, if that's okay. 
If, y'all, if you've not read this, it's an amazing Christian allegory by C.S. Lewis. Hey, I got the author right. Are you impressed, Aaron? Um, sorry, that's a joke from several years old at this point. Um, and one of the books in there is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And a couple of the kids, if you remember the story, get to go back. And um, they're, they're in Narnia, but their cousin comes along, their cousin Eustace. And uh, as we learn in the first sentence, this is, um, you, this is what all we need to know about Eustace at the beginning of the story. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's a great line. That, that's a great line. You know, terrible, terrible name, and he was kind of a terrible kid. Um, but the very last line about Eustace is, is this in the book. Back in our own world, everyone soon started saying how Eustace had improved and how you'd never know him for the same boy. There's this process that Eustace goes through throughout the course of the story, and, and I'm not going to prolong it. You need to read the book and, and check it out. But there's this moment towards, towards the, the end, the latter part of, of the book, where Eustace becomes a dragon. Um, he falls asleep on gold, and it's dragon gold, and he falls asleep with very dragonish thoughts. And he's had all of these horrible thoughts about his traveling companions and his cousins throughout this time. I mean, Eustace struggled. So he becomes a dragon as a result of this. And when he becomes a dragon and he sees this, he, he just kind of he, he freaks out, you know, there for a little while. He's thinking, oh, man, what in the world? What am I going to do? This is, this is horrible. And, and, and really the thing that's happening along, along the line is that it's not that Eustace had just become a dragon. It's because he's been a dragon all along. Like in his heart and in his mind and the way that he's been treating people. And it's not until he saw himself take that physical form and shape, that he was confronted with the consequence of his injustice and evil and his sin towards his cousins and toward the people that he was traveling with. And so when he recognized that, when he recognized the, the, uh, the destruction you know, that he had been causing all along and, and kind of came to grips with this is how he'd been presenting himself all along, something changed in him. And so he said, oh man, this is, this is a pretty rough consequence. I, I wanna change, I wanna do something different. And so Eustace completely started working on his helpfulness, uh, the way he was talking with people. I mean, he was, you know, when the wind died down, he would fly and tow, you know, tow the boat as, as, as far as he could. I mean, things changed in Eustace's life. Then he also comes, uh, then he comes face-to-face with Aslan. And if you don't know, Aslan is Jesus in, in the story. And Aslan comes to him and he's like, hey, you know, I... I I've been a dragon. I, I, want, I want something different for my life, though. I recognize the consequences of that. It's, it's not, it's not what, what I want for my life. And, and, uh, and Aslan says, you know, you, you got to peel away all of these layers from this old life. Because there, there's a new life, and I want you to be a part of it, but you got to peel all these layers. And so, you know, the, uh, allegorically, you know, we think about what that looks like. Um, we think about the response that we have to God when he calls us to himself. We recognize our sin and, and that we need that gone um, and what God calls us into, he calls us into belief and faith, um, belief, faith, repentance, confession, baptism. You know, we've got that picture of washing away the old self, coming back into new life, like the res- resurrection of Jesus. And so Eustace starts clawing away at the skin. And he keeps going and he keeps going. He can't get it all, but Aslan helps him in the end. And, and Eustace, Eustace becomes this, uh, this whole, new, whole new boy. I mean, still Eustace Clarence Scrub, but he's a whole new person. Because what Aslan has done in his life, how he's, he's changed his entire trajectory um, because he's recognized 
that his brokenness needs to be done away with. And all these things, all these things that are um, that are true about God, uh, that he's angered by sin, that evil doesn't go unpunished, that injustice will be corrected, are all leading to a really specific result that he desires for all people. God does all these things. He protects and corrects because he wants to restore. And this is, this is what happens to Eustace. Is that by the end of the story, he's a completely different, changed human being because he's recognized the consequence of sin and said, hey, I don't want to live a life that is on that trajectory anymore. God is a God of restoration. And the way that he ensures this will happen is through Jesus. Because he knows, he, knows, he knows that sometimes we struggle to self-correct. And we know that we won't and we can't self-correct enough to dig ourselves out of the holes that we dig ourselves into. And knowing that his anger against sin and evil and justice is holy and righteous and justified, he ultimately doesn't pour out his entire wrath on us. He doesn't pour his wrath on us, but he pours it out on himself through his son Jesus as the sacrifice that is the gift of grace and mercy that allows us to be restored instead of destroyed. And that's the full story. That's the full prophetic message. That's what God is leading toward and wants all people to come to understand and know about him and to experience all the nations of the world. And so I, I just want to encourage us to think, especially as believers in Jesus, if, if, you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a Christian, I, I want you to think about that, that type of approach that God has. So when we see evil and injustice and sin in the world, you know, the, the attitude, what we try to do about it, you know, the ways that we respond, is it, is it, is it leading toward restoration? Like, is that where our hearts and minds are directed toward? Because that's, that's where God's is. And that's where his heart wants to lead us in those ways. And so I just want to encourage you to think about, think about the things that you, have, that you have been given by God in your life, to have responsibility of, that he has entrusted you with. And think about each of those things. And how, how, might, how might you be partnering with God and restoring those things to what God wants in those areas of your life? your work, your family, your, your, your material possession, what, whatever those things are. Um, how, how can we think about that in terms of the way that God wants to reconcile and restore those things to him? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, it's one of those things, if you kind of have come to this place where you recognize, yeah, um, sin is really destructive in my life, and I want to do something different about that. Um, God wants to restore, and he offers, offers freely this way of redemption through Jesus. And so we would love to talk to you about what that looks like. Um, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to believe, repent, confess, what it means to be immersed um, and, uh, and, and follow Jesus and, and live this life to which he has called us. Um, there's nothing that God can't transform when we mourn the sin that dehumanizes us and when we follow the, the one who revitalizes our lives with the goodness of God. Um, we're going to celebrate that right now, the thing that Jesus does for this to be the case, for us to be restored to God. Um, and we're going to take, take communion together. So we're going to spend time. There's a couple different tables around the room. Uh, there's two cups uh, stacked together. One has bread, one has juice. And it re represents the fact that Jesus broke his body, he shed his blood so that we could be restored back to God. And as we, um, as we take communion together and spend this time together, I, ju I just want to read the last, uh, well, the last several verses from Zephaniah 3, just as a kind of a, a celebratory moment of the result of God's restoration in our life. So here, here's what I want us to think about 
as we take communion this morning. Sing aloud. This is Zephaniah chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 14 through the end of the, end of the um, book. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you, you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord.